The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. If you would like to help us in our fight against addiction, go to www.patreon.com slash the addiction podcast 273. That's www.patreon.com slash the addiction podcast 273. Hello. And welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I am the host for this podcast. And my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. Just a reminder to please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating. That way, when people listen or they're looking for hope, they find our podcast. Please also go to our YouTube channel by the same name. There, the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. And subscribe. Ring the bell so you're notified and give our videos a thumbs up once again so that when people are looking for help with addiction, they find our podcast. Today we have an interview. Today's episode is episode number 355, and we have an interview with a lady named Susan Herrick. Susan is a is an author. She wrote a book called Dancing with the Devil, A Son's Substance Use Disorder, A Mother's Anguish. Susan um is a retired professor at UNC Fayetteville, St. Andrews University, and Methodist University. Early in her career, she was a community liaison specialist at HCA Cumberland Psychiatric Hospital and Treatment Center, and she gave seminars on mental health disorders and addiction. Let's talk to Susan Bartz Herrick. Susan Bartz Herrick. Thank you for being willing to talk to us on the podcast today and share your story as well as Luke's story. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Susan, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and um, yeah, and, and, and Luke's background. Tell us a little bit about your family. Well, um, I am a retired professor. I taught speech and theater for years. Um, but before I did that, I worked in the uh, mental health field. And little did I know way back then, and I'm talking the mid-1980s, that what I learned back in those days, um, I would be living out towards the end of my life. I uh, talked about... Um, addiction. And back in those days, it was just say no, and you won't have any problems. Um, I, Even though um, it was interesting, because the DSM, I think it was three at that time, said it was a disease, but the rest of the world didn't seem to think so. Mm. So, um, I wanted to be a mother, really, more than anything, and um, I was an older mother. I had my son, Luke, when I was 35 years old. I married his father, um, thinking he might have uh, some alcohol problems, and it was very interesting how I, even though I was out there professing and talking about recognizing symptoms, I did not see them in my own world. I had closed eyes and then I thought, well, I'll, you know, I can love him out of it. I can show him how. So just about every single uh, 
mistake that could have been done, I uh, I did. Anyway, I had my son, and um, he was brilliant little child. We we had him tested when he was uh, five years old, and they said that he had an IQ of about 140. But they also said they detected some neurological glitches. And what I did not know at that time and um, is that there are precursors to addiction. Hmm. And yeah, um, some, some great studies on this. Uh, and I didn't know that that is what I was looking at. Um, he had ADD, he had Tourette's, um, night terrors, all neurological things, <clears throat> which, excuse me, are some of the precursors. Hmm. And he was, um, I took him to the doctor because he had a hard time reading. And I was given a choice either to treat his ADD or his Tourette's because one of the medications would make the other one worse. So I chose the ADD, which was Adderall, and it helped him, but he couldn't sleep. So we had to take him off of everything. Um, and it was hard to watch him struggle. When he was 14, um, just the timeline here, this is the um, early 2000s. Now, at this time, um, the Oxycontin crisis was really ramped up, but also doctors were still passing Oxycontin out like candy. And he was given Oxycontin when he was 14 for a pylonial cyst surgery. Um, unfortunately, when he was 11 years old, his father and I did split up. And like many divorces, it was uh, a rough one. Well, that hit Luke hard, the trauma, losing everything, which is another precursor. So Luke had this emotional pain. And then he also had been given Oxycontin four times um, before the age of 17. And he wow. became, yeah, uh, I, the doctors didn't know. They were told it was less than 1% addictive. Yes, they were. Um, yeah. I really took a lot of time uh, to try to figure out what was going on with him. I took him to a psychiatrist who said, well, he's bipolar, so you have to put him on bipolar meds. So we started that go around and it, it proved to be pretty uh, catastrophic. Mm -hmm. I took him to a psychologist who said, ma'am, I need you to take, you know, hear what I'm saying. Um, your son is very depressed and he's very bright. He's very creative and he's medicating all of this pain through drugs and alcohol. I mean, anything he could get his hands on. It was the first time that I was introduced to the medication called Suboxone. And I said, great, where do I get it? He said, well, there's kind of a problem here. I said, can, can you get it for me? He said, no, only a doctor who has a specific amount of training. At that time, it was eight hours. Um, 
additional training can't prescribe it. Well, what sense does that make? They're passing it out like Pez. One of the drugs that can truly help, there wasn't anyone around. In the state of North Carolina at this time, I found three. And the closest one to me was 120 miles away. Wow. Yeah. Well, I got there. Luke got put on Suboxone. He very much wanted to go uh, to school and he was having a very hard time. So he got into the program, totally walked off it, got accepted uh, to school. But unfortunately, he was in a near fatal car accident Mm. when he was 18. And Mm. when I tell you, we almost lost him. Uh, He was on a ventilator for a week. Uh, his whole chest area was crushed. Uh, I think altogether there were 27 broken bones, but the worst one was a burst T fracture in his back where they had to put in a Harrington rod. He was paralyzed for a while, but that all came back. But about a week into the tragedy, um, they said they thought he was going to make it. They didn't know how, um, but he was. And I looked over to the side of uh, his room and I saw all these bags of drugs, morphine, Dilaudid, fentanyl. And I thought, we are going to have a much bigger problem if he pulls through. And Joni, we did. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. If you would like to help us in our fight against addiction, go to www.patreon.com slash theaddictionpodcast273. That's www.patreon.com slash theaddictionpodcast273. This happened in the state of Florida. He was uh, an hour out from visiting his grandmother. He was going to go and take care of her for a while because grandpa had just passed away, Mm. uh, which was another hard tragedy because he he and his grandfather were very close. And anyway, um, so we're in another state. Unbeknownst to me, was the pill mill capital of the world at that time. Uh, after eight weeks, they let let him out of the hospital and said, well, we don't think you need the drugs anymore. Um, and they let us off in another state, but he said he can't travel anywhere. We were stuck trying to find a doctor to manage his care. First off, it was insurance. I finally found someone and this doctor was still treating with oxycotton which of course i thought he needed mm-hmm. still 
just just because of, of his injuries right. and he treated the pain and of course everything was um, escalating because of the tolerance luke's father had a very very high tolerance towards alcohol i mean this man could sit down and drink a case of beer or a fifth of jack daniels get up walk and talk wow yeah um and it looked like luke had the same kind of tolerance because mm. they had him up to 600 milligrams oh a day which as you know is end of life cancer yeah and yeah and then they cut him off because the policies changed and doctors were so afraid of getting sued and there were so many patients who got caught in all of this um so we had to just stop i mean ah well but they didn't either know any better or they didn't care. So we or they were, were stuck, afraid or afraid. Right. Um, Luke got into such, uh, he tried withdrawing um, on his own. Of course that didn't work. I did get him in a treatment center and in my ignorance, um, you know, they said, 28 days, well, fine, 28 days, you know, he'll be fixed. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. If you would like to help us in our fight against addiction, go to www.patreon.com slash theaddictionpodcast273. That's www.patreon.com slash theaddictionpodcast273. I thought, I honestly thought at that time that um, if he just wanted it enough that he would be okay. I did not know what the research said that it can take up to a year or more for the receptors to come on down, relax, and still you always have to be careful. We went through another eight months, which I'm sure... Many people watching this broadcast, you know, uh, the the real dark days Mm. of using, uh, sneaking around, selling things, arguments, fighting, um, trying to control it, trying to cure it. Um, And I found a needle in his room um, early one morning and I was so exhausted and I was so scared. I just knew at that time, if something didn't change, that I would walk in his room and I would find him dead. Right. I just, um, and that had happened to a girlfriend of mine and I don't know what came over me, but he, he was in bed. I walked in his room and held it up and I said, son, I know what's going on. And I'm giving you a choice. I'm giving you 24 hours to find a place to live. No car, no phone, no money, 
no credit cards, nothing, I will get a court order if need be to keep you away. This is your choice. Or we can go in and we can find a year-long treatment center for as far away from North Carolina and all of the same playmates and same playgrounds that you have and get you some help. And I walked out and I went in my office. Ten minutes later, I heard his door open and I really expected a fight. Instead, he just fell into the chair sobbing. He said, Mom, I have tried everything I know. I, I want to stop. I need help. I want a life. I want my life. I don't like living like this. I can't live like this. I know I'll die. So we got on the computer and we found, found a place out in California where he had four months in a treatment center and then an entire year in a sobriety house. Now, I wish I could tell you this was free. It mm. wasn't. No, no, I know. Um, my uh, The insurance paid for the first three months, and I was very fortunate that my mother, Luke's grandmother, had a checkbook, and she could write out a check for $3,000 a month. Mm -hmm. It grieved me terribly because I thought, what are the people doing who don't have a mom like I do? They're dying. Right. They're dying. Well, when Luke came out of the house, I mean, um, I had my son back. Mm. And he was, um, he started going to school when he was out there to work on his associate's degree. Um, he, he asked me to transfer to uh, a big school against my better judgment. I said yes. When he told me he joined a frat, I thought, well, what have I done? Again, I was making decisions about what I thought would be best instead of really understanding what this disease was really about and listening to the experts. Uh, because I had all this education and I worked in the field, you know, I, I thought I knew better. I did not. Mm. And, um, but he got back on the program again uh, and had three and a half years that uh, he got a great job in retail on Rodeo Drive. I had, I had no retail experience in his life, I told him. I said, <laughs> you know, and he said, but they like me, Mom. You know, and he had this incredible personality. Um, Luke's father passed away. And then at the same time, he kept on complaining about a problem in his back, a, a, a pain. Well, of course, I'm thinking he's drug seeking. He's drug seeking. Um, but the more it went on, I said, okay, go take another x-ray. And he said, I just had one. Um, the doctor thought maybe we should take a a, a scan because the pain's lower than where the break was. And during that time, we found out that he had a medical device that was put in during his original surgery had slipped and it was uh, perforating his spine and his aorta. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So he had to go in. Uh, I brought him back home and um, I took him up to Duke and they had to do a massive surgery um, wow. They could not do uh, 
I because I was a professor, I could get into the emails of the physicians there and explain to them, listen, we have a unique case here. My son has substance use disorder. He has been off of drugs, but he is going to have to go back on them. I need some experts here to figure this out. I need an addictionologist. Hmm. They, they didn't have one. And they said, oh, everything will be okay. I said, no, it won't. No, it won't. You've been through it. Right. And I, I was fortunate. A, a very close friend of mine um, is an anesthesiologist. And she said, there are certain anesthesias that you can't use because it will trigger. She said, some are very safe. And Duke was very open to hearing suggestions and got a really good team together that um, they were able to do the surgery with minimal um, narcotics. Right. But when uh, he came out of that, the pain level was starting to escalate and escalate, and he had the morphine pump. <clears throat> Excuse me. One morning, uh, four of the leading uh, anesthesiologists walked into our room and said, son, um, we've been noticing the amount of morphine that you're using and the nurses tell us that you are in pain, but we have never seen a person uh, be able to handle this amount. What you're taking right now is enough to really put down an elephant. And here you are having a conversation. We've got to figure out how to walk you down from all of this safely so you can go home because there's no way that we can let you out on this amount. Wow. And uh, the pain management clinic head, uh, Dr. Thomas Buchite at Duke, sat down with us and he created a protocol because he said, there is no protocol for this. We're going to have to make one up. Hmm. And he worked uh, and he walked loop down on methadone and a host of other drugs. Unfortunately, Luke got hooked on the methadone. Um but knew he had to go back into a treatment center where he could get the support. He said, I can't do this by myself. Uh, it's it's driving me crazy. Was in for 30 days, ended up teaching some of the classes there because of his experience. He did great. Three weeks out, um, he has a blockage back in the hospital. First thing they do is shoot him up with morphine and then tell them, okay, we got the blockage gone. Now go. I said, you, you need to give him Suboxone to walk him down. The entire hospital staff down here did not even know what I was talking about. Ugh. Yeah. Again, you know, but you know, Joni, it's not, um, it might be starting to be taught now in nursing school, hmm. medical school, but it hasn't been because of the 1914 Harrison Act that you're not, yeah, you're not allowed to treat an individual <clears throat> uh, with an addiction with another addictive substance. Now, that law is over 100 years old, hmm. and they are still operating on that. And when you think about it, substance use disorder is a chronic disease. So um, uh, is 
heart failure, so is diabetes. Um, and yet these other conditions have got 20 to 30 drugs that doctors can pull from medications to help these patients. People with substance use disorder are only offered three, only three. Why is that? Well, according to a CNN report back in 2017, of all the millions or billions of dollars that is being spent on the opioid crisis, 1% goes to research and development. Why is that? The stigma. The stigma reigns the day. And the stigma is what keeps a lot of doctors from learning more about it. I have a very good friend who is a drug and alcohol counselor. She's also lost a child to this. And she did an in-service for the hospital close to me not too long ago. I'd say maybe a year ago and invited 65 doctors to come learn more about substance use disorder and how to manage it, how to refer, how to use Suboxone, six people showed up. Hmm. Anyway, getting back to the story, Luke had four blockages in all each time. He had exactly the same experience. He finally just learned how to walk himself off through Kratom tea. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, that also proved to escalate him. Um, uh, he did go back into a sobriety house. He said, I just need to live there, Mom, for four months. He said the receptors are just on fire. And when he came out, um, I had my son back. Uh, he went back to school. He started his own CBD oil company because he said, I need to find something to help people that is not addictive and yet that can deal with anxiety because he had general anxiety disorder also. Uh, he was what they call dual diagnosis, mm. uh, which mm -hmm. is a term in the field, but that's another one of the precursors. Anyway, um, and just like with his getting the job in Rodeo Drive, he comes up to me, he said, Mom, I put in an application to the University of Pennsylvania. They've got this really special program for people who want a really good education, but have had, eh, let's say, glitches in their lives after high school. I said, yeah, you've had quite a few. I said, honey, you realize that's an Ivy League school, don't you? You know, then he said, yeah, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, I hope he doesn't get too disappointed. Well, son of a gun, he gets let in. So, yeah, you know, um, and what really helped him too, uh, he started to golf. Now he was raised on a golf course and when he was small, um, he golfed a lot and he tried a couple times and, and I, I told him, you know, let's get more physical activity here. Um, and I told him to go and golf and he said, you know, it, it just hurts my back. And I said, Luke, change your swing. I said, there was a man out there who had one arm and who was a scratch golfer. I guarantee you, he did not have the pro swing. Luke went out, and six hours later, he came back just on fire. He said, Mom, I changed my swing. I changed it. And 
from that time on, he had to go golfing every single day, if, if it was just out to, to the range. But, you know, it, it really backed up the scientific evidence that <clears throat> uh, heavy exercise and building endorphins through this can help with addiction up to 90%. Wow. That's a, that's a huge it's Number. also extroverting when you're out doing um, exercise like that. Like your attention is not on your worries. It's right. typically not even on your body. It's more just on, oh, look way out there. Let's get the ball out there. Let's see how far we can hit it. So it's extroverting, which is really good. Yeah. And um, he had three and a half years of just one success after the other, after the other. And I knew he was still in pain. Um and then COVID hit. And uh, we had a perfect storm happen between the, uh, with the medical device that he had taken out. There was a lawsuit with that. So he had to prepare for a deposition. And his attorney told him, you know, uh, we need to settle out of court. And I said, why? And he said, because the second a jury hears, that you are addicted to drugs, they're going to think drug addict. I said he's been he's been in recovery for three and a half years. He's doing great. He said they won't care. Hmm. There's a stigma yep. there, yeah. And uh, so he had that. There was a breakup with a girlfriend with COVID. They were not allowed to meet every day. And Luke was in. Um, uh, probably one or two meetings a day. He was a very uh, beloved speaker out in the Santa Monica area. So um, uh, he knew Matt Perry. You know, I, I mean, he that was his life. Uh, the recovery group, they were his tribe. Mm -hmm. And um, because of all the stress, a doctor put him on um, some uh, clonopin. And uh, to ease down, well, that started the whole trigger sequence coming back. And then they tried an antidepressant. One made him more hyper, the other uh, depression. And eventually uh, he fell and, and he, he went back on fentanyl for a short period of time and then uh, got off through Suboxone. Matter of fact, that the last summer um, he was alive, he said, Mom, I need a place where I can just do this in a safe place. He said, I I'm on Medi-Cal, so I don't really have a place for insurance. Um, and so I said, come on home. And I worked, I watched him go through another horrific withdrawal. But this time he had a hard time to bounce back. A, a psychiatrist friend told me that it was a dopamine depletion. He had also broken his hand. He couldn't golf anymore. Mm. Yeah, I, it, When I say the perfect storm, and that's all covered in my book, I mean, it was just one thing after the other, all these little triggers that happened. And he decided that he was going to leave Los Angeles. He, um, he was kind of heartbroken too, uh, Joni, because he was very excited on the Zoom call meetings um, 
with all of his tribe that he got off, everything was good. But uh, all of a sudden that stopped, you know, and I said, Luke, what, why aren't you talking to them? And he said, because I had to go back on Suboxone. I said, and he said, my group doesn't believe that that is recovery. And I can't participate in that group. And I just, I just saw this broken heart and here he was caught in this. And there, there are a lot of groups, unfortunately, still out there that do not understand what dual diagnosis is. They don't understand the science that we have now. They're still going on the science of the 1930s when um, AA started. Once again, uh, it is not just a matter of willpower. The man who uh, wrote the afterword in my book, his name is Dr. Um, Aaron Gupta. He is an addiction specialist, and he also wrote um, a book about the preventable opioid crisis. He manages patients and claims that 80% of his patients are living wonderful lives. Uh, they are in recovery, but they're on Suboxone or some other medication. They have to come in and see him regularly, and he manages according to what's going on in their lives. He said, sometimes if they go through crisis or heavy triggers, I'll have to up it mm. in order to keep that anxiety. And then we wean back down, but it is possible. At the end of the day, um, Luke decided to move home, and he had spent the entire summer with me. Um, he got out to Los Angeles, and uh, the next day he woke up with airplane ear, uh, which was blocked eustachian tubes. He couldn't uh, hear. His balance was off. He kicked into that high anxiety mode. And he asked a friend for a Klonopin. He said, my doctor's appointment's three days away. Can you get me a Klonopin? And it was fentanyl. That was it. That was it. I'm sorry. Thank you. But um, to a sage... My grief, Joni, uh, I knew I had to tell Luke's story. I had always planned on writing his story, but as I was having so much fun being with him, mm-hmm. but now he was gone. I knew I had to tell his story. Plus, Luke's very close friend is a man uh, by the name of Jacob Taylor, who's an actor out in L.A. He's been on a lot of films uh lifetime things and small things you know he's he's trying to build his uh, career too and you know he just said Susan we've got to tell this story can you write everything down so I can find some uh, uh, screenwriters so I did and the more I got going on this the more I realized I had a book mm-hmm. and um and I let Jacob take off with it, and he did find two screenwriters with skin in the games, and the uh, screenplay called Luke is uh, complete. They're going to start to pitch it in January. Obviously, you know, the writer's strike this past year kind of slowed everything down, but 
because I knew I was writing outside of my field of expertise, um, I wanted to give a lot of information. So I did <clears throat> an incredible amount of research. I've got nine pages of endnotes, 10 pages of a bibliography in my book, which is called Slow Dancing with the Devil, right. because that's what it was. And um, so anybody who, <clears throat> excuse me, would read it, not only would hear our story, and I know, I mean, 300 people a day, 300 stories a day are going down, 100,000 stories a year. Mine is just one of them. But I also put in there an awful lot of information breaking down some of this very complex information on the studies about substance use disorder yeah. into an understandable uh, format. You know, as, as a journalist, you know, you know, we're supposed to uh, write and, and speak at a uh, level between sixth or eighth grade understanding mm -hmm. the research is written in level 16 mm -hmm. and i i've talked to some of these researchers and said you know is there any way that you could dumb this down a bit yeah. you know i said you know we we've been thinking about that too um uh and we're trying but um so far it's not out there so that really is the purpose of of my book is to help parents or loved ones of uh, people who have substance use disorder first to know that substance use disorder is a disease. It is not a moral failing. Exactly. You know, I appreciate you I, writing your book. I appreciate you being willing to share Luke's story because I think that you know, whenever we tell stories on this podcast or whenever people write books such as yours, it helps people because they find something they can resonate with. They find something that they can agree with and they find something that ultimately will help them. And that's that's what you're all about with your book. And that's what we're all about with the podcast. And I applaud you for writing it. I appreciate you for telling your story today. And I wish you huge success with it because it sounds like, um, you know, I, I haven't read your book, but it sounds like it's something that's really going to make a difference in people's lives. Even if it just saves one life, Joni. That's, that's yeah. immeasurable. It's immeasurable. Exactly. Yep. I never yep. want any other parent to get the phone call that I did. Nope. That's why we do this podcast. I am so sorry for your loss. Thank I, you. I, We've heard it before, and it doesn't ever, ever get any easier for me. And I haven't lost anybody to addiction, so it's just purely the mother in me that that reacts. But thank you, Susan. Thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And um, it is almost uh, Christmas, so wishing you a happy holiday. We'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.